dead man walking and a man walking to his death is our focus for this morning. Two people that take main stage in the passage, we're going to be looking at John 12. You can join me there as we look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday. And we are uh, one week from Easter, and this church, this location, along with millions of others, Christians across the globe, are looking at the triumphal entry of Jesus this morning, just days before his crucifixion. And so as we look at this passage, I want to encourage us to look at the person of Jesus. We're going to be looking at the person of Lazarus this morning and the Pharisees and all of this coming together as Jesus walks to the cross. A little bit of context for this morning's passage. We are six days from a festival that's taking place in the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus is in this little town of Bethany, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, and he's there with some of his disciples, and he is there with Lazarus, which uh, is an interesting dinner company because just a few days before, maybe a couple weeks before, Lazarus was dead in a tomb, and Jesus rose him, and now Lazarus is kind of following Jesus around, wondering what Jesus is going to do next in his life. And here in this maybe little room that Jesus and his disciples are eating in, um, Mary is there, who has been following Jesus for a few years now. And if you remember leading up to this, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with this really expensive perfume and she's kind of unintentionally preparing him for, for burial here. And, and Judas looks at this moment and you remember he's, he's really angry about it because he's like, oh, we could sell that perfume for a lot of money. What are you doing? And then I can scrape some off of the top. We should really sell that and care for the poor. And then all in this, we also get a glimpse. John gives us a glimpse into uh, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders of the time, the chief priest, and they're angry at the crowds that Jesus has been drawing. And so they do something really interesting. They've, they've already kind of planned to kill Jesus. He is too much of a liability. He is uh, rocking the boat way too much politically in the region, and so they've already planned to kill Jesus. But now they've got another problem. Uh, they've got this guy, Lazarus, walking around who is uh, raised from the dead by Jesus and is kind of this walking, talking representation of Jesus' power. And so now uh, the Pharisees and the chief priests have a problem. Not only do they have Jesus, but they have this other guy, Lazarus, who is also this kind of billboard for Jesus. And so Lazarus falls into their crosshairs as well, and they plan to kill him along with Jesus. And this all kind of takes us into our passage for this morning, into Jesus' triumphal entry, which is the very next day from this moment where Mary anoints Jesus' feet with perfume. And so we're going to be in John 12. We're going to start at verse 12 this morning and move on from there. This is John 12, 12 for us. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. 
So there's a feast going on in the city of Jerusalem, and there's large crowds there already. What's, what's being celebrated in Jerusalem? Well, this was an opportunity for the Jewish people to celebrate the Feast of Passover, Feast of Passover. And this festival was one of three different pilgrimage festivals that Jews um, under the Torah were required to travel to Jerusalem for. They needed to go to Jerusalem. They needed to go to the temple to celebrate this festival. And so what we have is people and Jews from all over, definitely all over the nation of Israel, but, but more than likely all over kind of the known world at this time, traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover festival. Now, now what's, what's Passover? What are they celebrating here at this time? What they're remembering, what Passover was established for, was to, was to remember and to celebrate how the Lord had delivered the nation of Israel way back in the day, how they had delivered the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And so for hundreds of years, at this point, every single year, Jews celebrated what the Lord did for them in Egypt. And if you remember the story in Egypt, Moses comes to the nation of Israel who has been enslaved for hundreds of years brutally by the nation of Egypt. And Moses comes and through him, the Lord uh, performs all of these miracles, all of these miracles. And if you remember the last miracle that was performed, it was um, the angel of death walked through the country of Egypt. And for all of those who had not painted their doorposts with the blood of a sacrificial lamb, the angel of death took the life of the firstborn in that house. And that was the moment where the nation of Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt. And this is what the Jews are celebrating. This is what Jerusalem is remembering. Jerusalem is remembering the Passover lamb. They are celebrating their, their rescue from the nation of Egypt, and they are remembering the lamb that was sacrificed so that the angel of death would pass over that household. This is what they are remembering in this moment, right? This is what the celebration is. This is what the festival is. And so I want us to think for a moment uh, about the vibe in Jerusalem before Jesus comes into the city, right? It's already a holiday, okay? It's like, you know, the, the day before you get out of work for Christmas, and it's just already kind of a, kind of a vibe, and, and you're celebrating, and so the nation of Israel is celebrating that they don't have to work for these next few days. Not only that, but they're remembering this kind of major milestone in their history, this, this miraculous salvation out of Egypt that they had. And there are thousands of people packed into this city, right? And then all underneath this, there's this whisper of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, like just this whisper going around about Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus had been traveling the country, around the countryside for three years at this point. He was performing miracles. He was feeding people. He was healing people. He had just raised Lazarus from 
the dead, and so he kind of already had um, a bit of a, of a public name. He was a public figure, and there was this whisper that, you know, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, he might, might show up today. He might show up at the Passover festival here. People have already been looking for Jesus because they heard about what he did to Lazarus, and it seems, you we look at the passage, that uh, Lazarus was just as popular, just as sought after as Jesus was at this point, right? And, and who wouldn't look, <laughs> look for a guy who was dead and who was raised back to life? But maybe more than interest in the miracles that Jesus had performed, Jesus was also, uh, he was a wanted man. He was a wanted man. And this was probably public knowledge to some extent. The Pharisees had been trying to figure out uh, this Jesus problem for, you know, maybe a year, more than that now. They had a Jesus problem, and they were looking to arrest and to question Jesus. And humans uh, just have this morbid curiosity about wanted people, right? It's why your wife won't put down the true crime podcasts. It's just like they're addictive. And we have this morbid curiosity about wanted people. And this is what Jesus was. And so all of these things, right, the, the celebration, uh, Jesus and Lazarus, their fame and their infamy kind of all swirled together to create this, this like this simmer right before the boil, right? Just kind of like bubbling beneath the surface here in Jerusalem. And so if this is kind of the vibe that's going on in the city of Jerusalem, this is the question. This is the question that I want us to uh, to ask ourselves right now, this morning. What do you think the Jews were expecting when Jesus came to Jerusalem? What do you think the Jews were expecting? What would you expect if you were in that city, right? Some might have, uh, some might have expected maybe the showdown between the Pharisees and between Jesus, right? Like, uh, like high, pist- high, high noon pistols at the temple, like this, this kind of showdown between Jesus, this newcomer, and, and the Pharisees who kind of were this established institution. Maybe they were expecting a showdown, and maybe others might have expected Jesus to continue what he'd been doing. You know, maybe Jesus is going to come and he's going to perform more miracles, or he's going to teach at the temple teachings that we have never heard of before. But maybe, maybe a more astute crowd would have made some connection between the Passover celebration that was taking place and Jesus' appearance in the city, right? As as the Jews were celebrating the deliverance of their people from Egypt, some might have made a connection to Jesus, right? Maybe they would have answered the question, what do you expect? Well, maybe they were expecting that Jesus would come and that he would deliver them from the Roman occupation, just like Moses came and delivered the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, right? Maybe these people were asking themselves, would Jesus make himself king in this moment? Ridiculously famous, ridiculously popular. They'd already tried to make him king back in in John 6. He had fed all of these people, and the Jews swarmed him, and they wanted to make him king there in that moment. And so Jesus had this kind of like groundswell of support, this popular support from all of these people. 
in the backdrop of the Passover festival, if the Jews made a connection to Egypt, they were probably expecting Jesus to enter the city as somebody like Moses, right? We're looking for a Moses. We're looking for someone to come and to perform miracles for us so that we might be delivered out of this kind of bondage that we are living in. Or maybe, maybe some of them were expecting and wanting and desiring Jesus to come as the angel of death, right? This like, this like political militant king that would cut down their enemies and save them out of this bondage. The Jews wanted a king, right? And what nobody expected, like not even his disciples expected, was that Jesus did not enter the city as Moses. Jesus did not enter the city as the angel of death. Jesus was going to enter the city as the Passover lamb. They wanted a king. Instead, they were getting a servant. It's not what they wanted, but it is what they most desperately needed. And so with this backdrop of the Passover festival, thousands of people welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. Let's look and see how they welcomed him here. Verse 13, John 12, 13. It says, They took branches of a palm tree and they went out to meet him. They went out to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So this is how the Jews welcomed Jesus into the city, and this is how Jesus entered the city himself. And, and so there's a few interesting pieces here. There's a few interesting pieces here, right? We have, we have palm branches. Okay, what's going on with the palm branches? We have this word hosanna. What's going on with this word hosanna? It's a reference to, the, to a psalm, a specific psalm. And then we have Jesus coming in on a donkey, which is another reference to Zechariah. Like, what, what's going on here? There's all of these things kind of coming together in this entrance. And so let's break this down, uh, maybe a piece at a time. But all of this, what all of this entrance, this kind of grand entrance of Jesus, this kind of subversive entrance that Jesus takes into Jerusalem, what all of this is working to show is that, one, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. That's the first thing we find. And then also, what we find in this is that Jesus comes on his own terms, not on ours. Jesus comes on his terms, not ours. Not those dictated for him. Not even those maybe expected of him. And so each of these pieces of his entry, they show us the terms by which Jesus comes. And the first is this. The first way that Jesus comes, the first term by which Jesus comes is this. Jesus comes to save. Jesus comes to save. 
And we see this in the people shouting, Hosanna. What, what's this mean? What is this word? It's a, it's a really interesting word as it's used in Scripture because it's actually only used three places in the New Testament. It's only used three places in the New Testament. And it's only used one place in the Old Testament. And that is where these quotes are pulling from, from Psalm 118. It is a word that at bottom, what it really means is it's, it's a cry for help, right? It's a cry for help. It's, it's the Jews saying, save, please. But what happened to this word over the years is it went from um, like a declaration of a need to be saved to kind of a, of a hopeful expectation that they would be saved. And it was focusing on a specific person. And like I said, it, com- it comes from Psalm 118. And this is where it comes from. Psalm 118, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. This is the save us, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is also what they were saying. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so we have this word, Hosanna, save us, O Lord. We pray, give us success. And then blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What the psalmist is doing here is he's asking the Lord for salvation. And then almost immediately he answers himself and and he answers where that salvation is going to come from. And it's going to come from someone who comes in the name of the Lord. And what the Jews were doing in this moment is they were remembering this psalm, which I think is incredible, first off. Like their knowledge of the Old Testament was incredible. They remembered this psalm and they were connecting it to the person of Jesus. But they were connecting it imperfectly. They weren't connecting the whole psalm to him. They were just connecting the parts that they wanted to be true, right? Remember, they're looking for a messianic king. And so verse 13, they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Which is from Psalm 118 here. But then they add something to this. They say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. What are they doing here? They're forcing a fantasy. They're forcing their own interpretation of the Old Testament. They're forcing their terms and their expectations onto Jesus. Jesus, come in the name of the Lord and come as a saving, political, messianic king. If you look a little bit closer at Psalm 118, you'll see why this is kind of strange, that they would force this, they would change this. Psalm 118 goes on to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. And here it is. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now, Maybe if the Israelites had looked a little bit closer at the psalm that they were quoting, they would have connected Jesus not to a political king, But rather, they would have connected Jesus to sacrifice, the festal sacrifice, the festive sacrifice that Jesus actually was, right? But they didn't see that. You know, Hosanna, save us, Jesus, but do it in the way that we want you to. Save us, Jesus, but do it on my terms, the terms that I dictate. Jesus comes on his terms, not Hours. He does come to save, 
but he comes as a sacrifice, not as a political savior. And so the first way that Jesus comes into Jerusalem is that he comes to save. The second way that Jesus comes is to bring peace. He comes to bring peace. Notice that Jesus here uh, is entering into Jerusalem and they are uh, welcoming him. They're, they're blessing him. They're blessing his name. They are claiming that he is the king of Israel. And notice that he doesn't correct them, right? He doesn't take a moment and walk up on the hill and, and teach. I don't even know if he could do that with thousands of people kind of like thronging. He doesn't do that. He doesn't take a moment to teach, but he does kind of subversively, quietly subvert expectations. He comes riding on a donkey, right? And instead of focusing on Psalm 118 that the people are claiming for him, Jesus instead brings to mind this other Old Testament quote, this other Old Testament reference, Zechariah 9. And this is Zechariah 9.9 that's quoted here. It says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And, and this passage here in Zechariah, it goes on to talk about uh, the rule of this king, that it is foreshadowing, the rule of this king that it is predicting. And this rule is one uh, that is peaceful. Zechariah 9 goes on to talk about how all the chariots of the land and the bows of the land and the swords of the land and the war horses are taken away and instead are replaced with peace. And so here we have Jesus not claiming kingship in the way that the Israelites want him to, but rather he comes not to make war but to bring peace, right? Because Jesus comes on his terms, not ours. Jesus comes to bring peace. And then the last way that we see Jesus enter Jerusalem, the last way we see Jesus come is in fulfillment of God's plan. Jesus comes to fulfill God's will. See, John makes a, makes a note here that he and the other disciples in the moment, they didn't understand what was happening at first, right? They look at this, and they're just kind of going along with it. All right, Jesus wants a donkey. Somebody go get Andrew, go get him a donkey. I don't know what he's looking for. Everybody's claiming Hosanna. They're not really understanding what is going on. Well, what exactly do the disciples not understand? What exactly is John saying here when he looks back and he says, we didn't, we didn't understand these things at first? This is what I think the disciples didn't understand. I think it is the same thing that the Jews didn't understand. The disciples knew that Jesus had come, right? That something was special about this man. They even knew that he was uh, the Messiah, the, this guy that was promised throughout the Old Testament that would come. They knew that. They knew that he had come. They knew that he was the Messiah. But what they did not understand was the way in which Jesus came and the way that the kingdom of God was going to be established, right? The disciples thought that Jesus' path to glory was through kingship or, or increased influence, right? That's the path. They, they, they were going to follow Jesus and, and there was going to be uh, increased influence after a while and Jesus would establish the kingdom this way. 
What they didn't understand was that Jesus' path to glory in the establishment of the kingdom was not made through political kingship, but it was made through the cross. This is what the disciples didn't understand here. And it says, after Jesus was glorified, they remembered what was written and they remembered what was done to Jesus, right? That all of these things were written in the Old Testament, but it wasn't until Jesus had, had acted them out, they had been done to Jesus, that they understood what they really meant. And so we find in all of this that Jesus comes not to fulfill our expectations, not to come on our terms, but to fulfill God's will and to come on his terms, not ours. And what I love about the disciples, what I love about this passage here is I love just kind of the brutal honesty that John and the disciples give, right? He says, you know what, we, we did not really understand what was going on here until we looked back. Until we had gotten some, some time, some days, some weeks, some events under our belts, and then we looked back at what had happened in the triumphal entry. Then we understood. And I think this is so true of, of our lives as well. Right? This is so true of our, our lives as well. Like How many times in the middle of, uh, of, of the mess, in the middle of the problems, and in the middle of the difficult situation, do we look at this and we say, God, I don't get this, right? I don't understand this. I don't know what you're doing in my life right now. And it's not until we get some time, we get some days, some weeks, some events under our belt, and we look back and we say, I see it. I see God's hand in these events. I see God's will being done through these moments. But so often it takes time for us to look back to see what God was doing. And I think that this encourages us to a few things. First, I think it encourages us to humility in the moment, right? Do you have humility in the moment to maybe think like, okay, I maybe don't have this all figured out like John and the disciples. Maybe in that moment they felt like they did have it all figured out, that it was happening, that Jesus was gathering thousands of people and they were the closest disciples that Jesus had. They were going to have something to show for their sacrifice. But I think it pushes us to humility in the moment. Maybe we don't have it all figured out. And the second thing I think this pushes us to is that we need to trust that God will work it out. That God is working things out for your good and for his glory if you are following him, right? So humility in the moment and trust that God is working things out. And so we see that Jesus comes. He enters Jerusalem here, but he does it on his terms. He doesn't do it on ours. And Jesus subverts expectations in so many ways, and sometimes we don't understand how he is working in our life. But, but, what we can trust is that if you have come to Christ, God is working in your life, and your story matters. Your story matters. And this is what I want us to see at the end of this passage with Lazarus and with the Pharisees. So we're going to look at two new people here, Lazarus and the Pharisees. This is John 12, verse 17, as we continue on in this passage. It says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness 
okay? The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign, the sign for Lazarus. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so what Jesus, uh, John, what John, the author of this gospel, does here is he goes back a few chapters to the story of Lazarus. Right? And we remember Lazarus was uh, dead for four days. Jesus waited to go heal him. They waited to go raise him. He was dead for four days, and he came and he raised Lazarus up from the grave. And this just happened, like maybe, maybe two weeks before, a couple days before, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so let's talk about Lazarus for a moment. All right, he was walking with uh, Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus, and there was this crowd that had been following Jesus ever since Lazarus had been raised from the dead, right? And this, this makes sense. This makes sense. If you had seen a man raise a dead person back to life, you would probably maybe want to follow him a little bit, maybe from a distance. Like, I'm going ch- to just watch this guy. I don't know what he's doing. But you're going to, I want to see what this guy does next. This is kind of interesting, okay? And so it was this, there was this crowd that was, had been following Jesus ever since Lazarus was raised from the dead. And what they are doing is this crowd is going around and they are telling people about what Jesus had, had done. They're, they're like adding to the buzz around Jesus. They said, oh yeah, look, like, no, that's the guy. That's Jesus. And the dude walking next to him, he was dead in a tomb. I saw it. He was dead. And that guy raised him back to life. And they're walking all over Jerusalem and they're telling people about this Jesus of Nazareth. And they're kind of adding to the simmer. And this is, it says, one of the reasons why there was this huge crowd that had come out to visit and to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem because of the testimony of this crowd that had seen him perform miracles. Because they had heard about Lazarus, right? And Lazarus, he, you remember, he was the brother of Mary and Martha. He had been following Jesus and his teachings for probably years at this point. He was an early follower of Jesus, and he had most likely led a pretty quiet, normal life until he died, right? He had led a pretty quiet, normal life until he died. And now, Lazarus is such a blazing, uh, incandescent signpost for Jesus' authority and power over sin and death that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him now. The Jewish leaders wanted to kill Lazarus because of what he represented. Because Lazarus was this this walking, uh, talking, breathing influencer for Jesus Christ, right? Lazarus at this point, he owes the rest of his life to Jesus. Literally, every breath, every step that Lazarus takes is because Jesus decided to raise him back to life. He owed his life to Jesus. And this is the incredible part about the story of Lazarus. Lazarus didn't have to do anything for his life to be a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. He literally just had to walk around and talk. He just had to live and follow closely to the person of Jesus. 
in, in Verge, in our student ministry here, one of our core values is that your story matters. Your story matters. Um, this gets to the point that in Christ, right, all of your, your past pain, all of your, your present problems, all of your future victories, right, all of it, if you are in Christ, it, it matters. It matters. One, because you are made in the image of God and that gives you dignity and worth and value and God cares deeply for you. But then, but then secondly, our stories are an opportunity for the glory of God and what God has done in our life to shine through. Our stories are an opportunity for the glory of God to shine through, right? Each of our stories is one, one tiny, one small line in the book that God is writing. And here, in the life of Lazarus, we find that his story matters too. But Lazarus' story is not interesting because of what Lazarus did, right? Lazarus just died, and anybody can do that. Lazarus' story is interesting because of what Jesus decided to do to and through him, right? And what I want us to see here in this moment as we're looking at this triumphal entry of Jesus, as we're looking at a crowd that is caught on fire for the person of Jesus, what I want us to realize is that each and every person here in this room, if you are in Christ, you are Lazarus too. You are Lazarus too. If you are in Christ, you have been brought from death to life, and you are a walking, talking influencer for Jesus, right? No one would be interested in a dead Lazarus. No one would be interested in a dead Lazarus. The only thing left interesting in a dead man's story is how did he die? And it's the same for our spiritual lives, too. The only thing left that is interesting in a spiritually dead person is how did they die? And I can tell you how they died. They died in their sin. Right? How did he die spiritually? Oh, he died in his sin. And if you are not in Christ, we are repeating the same sad story over and over again. How did he die? He died in his sin. And there is nothing left interesting in a dead man's story. But the incredible, right, miraculous, influential story that is available to us, that is available to you in this moment is not how did he die, but rather how was he raised back to life again? That's an interesting story. That's a story that gets people talking, right? How was he raised back to life again? And then what is Jesus going to do next? What is Jesus going to do next in his life? This is why People were so interested in Lazarus. And this is the hope that we have to share if we are in Christ, right? I used to be angry, and then Jesus met me and changed my story, and now I have a story to share, right? I used to be greedy and bitter, and then Jesus met me, and now I have a story to share. When we meet Jesus, we have the opportunity to take part in a story that is eternal, that is influential, that is interesting, that brings people from death to life. 
And so the question this morning is, have you met Jesus? Or are you repeating the same sad story over and over again? Have you met Jesus? Right? The one who is gentle and lowly, the one who does not berate and shame you for your sin, but calls you up out of death and sets new life in your heart and says, walk beside me. And when people ask, tell them it was me who brought you back to life. If you are in Christ, you are Lazarus. And God has work for you to do, right? Lazarus' story mattered and yours does too. And so what we are called to do is be influential for the one who resurrected you. Just as every breath and step of Lazarus's life was due to Jesus, so too every breath and every step and every thought and every moment that you have if you are in Christ is Jesus and he will do what he wants with your life. Right? Lazarus and this resurrection was the last miracle that Jesus performed in John's gospel. And so John says that he wrote his gospel so that people would believe that Jesus is the one who was promised, that Jesus was the Son of God, and that by believing, they may have life in his name. This was John's whole purpose of writing. This was John's whole purpose of sharing the Lazarus miracle. And this message of life that Jesus had was attractive not just to some people in Jerusalem, but what we find is that it was attractive to the whole world. Here in verse 19, we get to the grumpy Pharisees. It says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And I love this moment. Um, have, have you ever been so wrong in your life that there are like layers to it? Like, like you're so wrong that you almost circle back around to being right? You can ask your wife or your husband if you need to be reminded. But this is, this is what happened here. This is what happened here with the Pharisees. I love this moment with the Pharisees. Um, because it kind of gets to the heart of the problem that they had with Jesus. And there are, I think, a couple interpretations of this statement. Um, it's not 100% clear what they're talking about here, and maybe it's because they didn't know what they were talking about. Um, but one of, this, one of the ways that this statement could be interpreted is um, some internal frustrations that the Pharisees had. They were, they were frustrated with one another, and they were talking uh, maybe to one another, and they were saying something like this, you know, this is getting us nowhere. Like, our plans are getting us nowhere. Look at all these people that are following him. Clearly, this is not working. And this would be using this word world that the Pharisees use here to kind of describe the whole city of Jerusalem and all of the different types of people who had come for the Passover festival. What they're saying is that our plan to subvert this guy isn't working. Like everything we try to do fails. We need a different plan. This is maybe one interpretation of what the Pharisees are frustrated about here. The other interpretation could be a condemnation of the kinds of people that were following Jesus. And so the Pharisees are looking at Jesus and they're saying, you know, what are you doing, you people, you people who are following Jesus, you aren't gaining anything. Look at the sinners who are following him. 
Look at the types of people that he surrounds himself with. These are not the types of people you want to be hanging out with. And if these aren't the type of people you want to be hanging out with, then Jesus is not the person to be following. They look at Jesus and they judge him based on the type of people that he gathers. That's another interpretation. And and I think there's probably hints of both of these. There's internal frustrations that the Pharisees have that, that their plan isn't working. And then there's judgment towards Jesus because of the types of people that he's gathering to himself. But at the end, right, their plan is clearly not working, and Jesus is only getting more and more popular, more and more famous. The political stability of the region is being rocked by Jesus, and they don't know what to do, right? They don't know what to do, but they need to do something fast, and they need to do something secretive. But we look at this passage here and the frustrations that the Pharisees have. I think you look at the the passage that follows and it talks about um, a group of Greeks who were there for the Passover festivals. So these were non-Jews who had come to the Passover festival and who ended up coming to Jesus for eternal life. And this also probably frustrated the Pharisees, right? What good can come from a guy who surrounds himself with sinners and foreigners? And this is our story too, right? Because sitting in this room is a bunch of sinners and a bunch of foreigners, far from God, who have been given new life and new purpose because of Jesus Christ. So a few closing thoughts here. So we've seen Jesus enter Jerusalem that was already at his boiling point, right? He was walking with Lazarus, who was dead, just a few weeks before, and the Pharisees weren't happy about it. And all of this is kind of pointing to the cross of Jesus that we're going to remember on this Friday. And so a few encouragement for us today who are not celebrating Passover, who are not in the city of Jerusalem, what do we find for ourselves in this passage? The first thing that we find is that we should expect that Jesus will work in your life. Expect that Jesus will work in your life. I think so many of us here, we don't expect that Jesus will show up, right? We follow Jesus blandly, right? Yes, we believe that Jesus is God. Yes, we believe that he is powerful. Yes, I believe that he forgives me of my sins. But we don't really think that he's going to show up in our life. We don't really think that he's going to work. And what we find here in the story of Lazarus and in this passage is that we are following a man a God who raises people from the dead, right? You are following somebody who has authority over all of creation. Do you expect Jesus to work in your life? Do you expect Jesus to show up and show his power over sin in your life, right? God works through our faith, not our ability. And just like Jesus showed up in Lazarus' life, he will show up in ours as well, and we should expect it. But second thing that we need to remember is that Jesus will work on his terms, not ours. Jesus will work on his terms, not ours, right? Just like the Jews expected a political savior, just like the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was doing, sometimes we place terms and expectations on Jesus, right? Jesus, come show up in my life, but do it in this way. 
Jesus, come do miraculous things in my life, but please do these specific things. Give me what I want, maybe not what I need, right? Don't ask too much of me. But what we find is that when Jesus asks for something in our life, when Jesus shows up and has an expectation for us, we give it to Jesus. Because just like Lazarus was bought heart and soul, breath in his lungs, every beat was Jesus, ours is too. We are Jesus bought heart and soul. And he works on his terms, not ours. And what this is, lastly, is an encouragement for each of us to tell someone about Jesus' work in your life, right? Imagine the stir that a walking, talking Lazarus made in the city of Jerusalem. But what we don't realize is that something just as miraculous has happened in our life if we are in Christ. We have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, and that is just as amazing as what happened to Lazarus, right? If you are in Christ, your past is no longer shameful, Rather, what your past is, is is saying, look at what Jesus did and look what Jesus brought me out of. It's not shameful anymore. It is a signpost to Jesus and to his power. It's evidence of Christ's power over sin. And so what we do out of this is that we live and we follow closely to Jesus and we tell somebody about what he's done in our life. Because you are Lazarus and your story matters. Not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has decided to do to and through you. Because Jesus decided to show up in your life on his terms and do amazing things through you. And all glory to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.